Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Stephanie Chandler, and I'm about to have a productive conversation with Mike Vardy. Welcome to a productive conversation with Mike Vardy. I am Mike Vardy, and I'm doing a rather selfish episode today. I know you're going to benefit from it. This episode is definitely relevant to the work that I'm doing right now as I'm recording it, but also going forward. Stephanie Chandler, my guest today, is the author of several books, including The Nonfiction Publishing Plan, and she is the CEO of the Nonfiction Authors Association. It's a vibrant community for writers, and the Nonfiction Writers Conference, which literally happened just a month before we uh, recorded this conversation. It's a live event conducted entirely online since 2010. We talk about the origins of that. We talk about her origin story. We talk about publishing in general, and we talk about maybe something that I should do with the productivity diet when it comes out that I didn't think about. In fact, if you listen, you'll get some insight as to how the launch of the book when it comes out will actually take place. She's a frequent speaker at business events and on the radio she's been featured on Entrepreneur and Business Week, The Writer, Writer's Digest and Wired Magazine. We had a great conversation. We talked before, we talked after. Great conversation. I know you'll get a lot out of it. Here is my conversation with Stephanie Chandler. Enjoy. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me today on a productive conversation. In what I would like to say is probably one of the most selfish conversations or episodes I've ever put in the 480, 90 plus episodes. Uh, thanks again for joining me today. Totally my pleasure, Mike. I can't wait to chat about publishing. <laughs> yes. So as many of my listeners know, by the time that this airs, and we're recording this in the throes of the Kickstarter campaign right now, um, I am, uh, I'm basically running a Kickstarter campaign for my next book. And, and I am a nonfiction book writer. Um, you, I want to get some history for you first. You, uh, when I was going through your bio, and we we're preparing for this, uh, this conversation, I'm like, I, I wonder where Stephanie comes from. Like where, so I'd like for you to share with the listeners, like your journey to this nonfiction kind of arena that you've kind of carved out your own little space for in many ways, not just on your own, but with the organizations that you're part of and you've run. And it, it's, it's quite a fascinating, like kind of journey, especially, you know, when it comes to where you started and now where you're at. <laughs> well, if you really want the story, Mike, um, so back in 2003, I quit my soul sucking corporate job in Silicon Valley and I opened a brick and mortar bookstore here in Sacramento, California, and thought I was going to write novels in the back office. And it turned out I was a terrible novelist, which quite frankly was devastating because I had spent my entire life wanting to write and I didn't know how else I could be a writer, right? And meanwhile, my Silicon Valley friends are literally like caravanning up to Sacramento, which is about two hours away, and saying, I can't believe you left that job. You know, you left a six-figure job. You're selling $4 paperbacks. Like, are you crazy? I want to leave my job. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to help them. And my first book was a business startup guide about how to leave your corporate job and start a business. And I couldn't get an agent, right? So 
I went to a writer's conference. I was like the only business book writer out of 350 people. I had an agent call me afterward and he said, I love what you're doing. Nobody knows who you are. You need to go build a platform. I need you speaking to thousands of people every year. And I was like, oh, I just like left the grind. I really don't want to do that. But I started a website. And back then it was called Business Info Guide. And I started writing articles because we didn't really have blogging in 2004. Right. And yeah, so I was very tedious to create an article. You basically have to create a new web page. It wasn't on WordPress. So I would, and I noticed every time I created new articles, my traffic was going up and I started building an email list. And anyway, a year later, I had the idea to write a book called From Entrepreneur to Infopreneur, Make Money with Books, Ebooks, and Information Products. It was the first book like it. And I was able to get a book deal with Wiley. Um, and then I signed with an agent. We sold a couple more books. And then I got turned off by traditional publishing, which we can get into. But um, I was so I was out speaking at writers conferences and I was like, why aren't they talking to us nonfiction writers? Right. It was almost exclusively fiction, maybe a little children's book, maybe an occasional memoir. But like, where's my tribe of right. nonfiction writers? Yeah. So in 2010, I got the idea to host my first nonfiction writers conference completely online for three days live using teleseminar. I was going <laughs> to say, what were you using? Because yeah. in 2010, I was at like Book Expo at Javits Center. And uh, to your point, that was, there was very <laughs> few nonfiction. Mostly was most, yeah. most, almost all of it was fiction. I came home with a bunch of sample books and I think I had one and my wife got like a dozen of them because she loves reading fiction. So yeah, mm -hmm. it, there was definitely this, wouldn't even say a divide. It was like, it was definitely a, a slant towards fiction. And you're right, children's authors, there's a lot of that there. But in two, yeah. so, so you were using teleseminar back before, now you've got services like Hey Summit and Zoom and all that stuff. And you're, this mm -hmm. is, this is being ahead of the curve for sure. It was definitely ahead of the curve. And I honestly had no idea if people would show up, but they did. And then- each year they'd say, how do we keep in touch when this is over? And I was like, well, I think we need to create a community, right? So I launched the Nonfiction Authors Association in 2013. So this is our 10-year anniversary, 13 years of the conference. And it has just been an amazing ride. There was a need for this community. And so listening to my audience, I realized we need resources for nonfiction writers. And it's so much fun. But I sold that stupid bookstore, by the way, three years gonna, after. Because Ryan, <laughs> Ryan Holiday went the other way. He started writing books and then bought a bookstore and now has it as kind of like his home base. And where no one can uh, see this right now, but I'm looking and I've got like, you got like, are you in the back of that bookstore still? So no. <laughs> I still love books, but I hated running a bookstore. Not fun. Don't recommend it. So let's get, let's get into, um, first off, let's dive into the, uh, the non, Fiction Authors Association, because uh, when I was looking through that, I mean, you're right. There's not a lot of resources for um, for writers that work exclusively in nonfiction. And a lot of people I have a friend, Mike Schmitz, who's uh, him and I both love reading nonfiction. And we have colleagues of ours who are saying, you know, you should read more fiction. And I try. I will audiobooks for me is probably the best form of fiction that I can read because they're it's the author is telling me the story. But even then, memoirs tend to float my boat a little bit more than that. Um so you started this community and you've got the the, the conference that literally as we're recording this happened what a month ago, I think. Um where when you when you started to put it together, especially cuz community is all the rage right now, what were some of the things that you did when building that community 
that worked that you that somebody now when they were starting a community would benefit from knowing right that they could say hey you know what? i want to expedite the building of a community hmm. that's not that for a group that's being underserved what were some of the things that you did that seemed to click Great question. So I was really focused on benefits for members. What do they want? What do they care about? I'm always listening to my audience. And honestly, Mike, I have a a rule for myself. If somebody asks me a question that I haven't already answered with a piece of content, it goes on a list and becomes a piece of content. So the very first thing was to load up this site with the, the behind the membership wall with content, mm. templates, checklists, reports, recordings. So it, I really wanted it to have an educational focus because quite frankly, there's a lot of bad information out there in the publishing world too. So that was the focus. And then, you know, bringing people in, you know, again, we were doing teleseminars back then. Um, and I learned a lot about SEO early on. So Blogging was a big um, factor for us. Mm-hmm. And it just, it honestly, it really grew very organically because it, it, so I launched in May of 2013. In October of 2013, my husband died unexpectedly, totally imploded my life. And I, I spent a year recovering from that. And meanwhile, I had one assistant who was basically keeping things rolling while I was pretty much checked out. But what happened, Mike, is the community grew anyway. Like it grew in spite of the fact that I was barely there. And I realized this is, there's a need for this. So when I was able to kind of pull myself together and get back, you know, it just has exploded from there. And every year we grow more and more and it's just so much fun. Uh, If you don't mind, I'd like to circle back to that moment where things kind of went obviously sideways for you. Mm -hmm. As a writer, did you write about that? Where did you find it cathartic? Did you journal? Um, I I know a lot of people will do that Mm -hmm. to get through those moments of pain, struggle. Was that something that helped you along the way? Because I know, I mean, I literally, as we're recording this, just wrote an email to my subscribers about the last time that something happened and to think back about Mm -hmm. it. And there's quite a bunch of responses that were like, I, you know, I'm thinking back to that stuff. And it's more of a reminder that Maybe we were talking just before we went on the on the air. Like my daughter wants to have a party here, and it yeah. will be the last party. She's in the other room too. It will be the last party that we have in this house. Um. So, <laughs> so, but that's something that that you know. I mean, and and I mean that's not to say that that's a struggle or a challenge or anything. But do you find that working through that stuff, writing, has helped you? Oh my gosh, so much. And honestly, at some point, I'd like to focus more on the writing to heal aspect because. No question. I journaled like crazy. I've got half written manuscripts about it. I mean, I lost my husband to suicide. It's I'm, I'm very open about that. Very tragic. He was a great man. He struggled for many years. And, and I really think it's also helpful in the mental health awareness space to write, to get your feelings out. It helps you process them. So yeah, I'm a huge advocate of journaling and writing for that healing process. Speaking of overwhelm, um, I would imagine that the community, and I mean, I, I'm literally, as I was going through, I'm like, I need to be part of this community because there's a lot of overwhelm. When you feel like you're on an island, I'm literally on an island, by the way. I live in Victoria, Canada, which is on Vancouver. <laughs> but you feel like it's, there's a lot going on. And 
we'll, I want to start with this, this particular angle before I go into the blogging versus book writing thing, because it's a very different thing, but not just in terms of the writing, but the, the feedback that you get, not external, but internal. So the overwhelm that writers face, especially nonfiction writers, like, you know, there's so much advice out there. There's so much, like you said, competing information, some of which is, you know, you know, closer to spot on than others. Um, what, what are some of the things that you've found as you've been, you know, navigating the community and building it that you were, let's say one piece of information that, that you keep hearing again and again, and you need to dispel the myth of like, Hey, you know, dial that back. This is, this is not necessarily the case. Here's, here's something that you might want to try or consider as an alternative, or here's really what's going on. Well, what comes to mind in regards to writing is those write your book in a weekend programs. I just don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> and, you know, but I also think you can chunk down that process of writing. It does sound like this monumental task. I hear this all the time. But my response to that is if you're, let's say you want to write a 50,000 word manuscript and a thousand words is three typed pages. If you wrote three pages a day for 50 days, you'd have a first manuscript. So it really, if you look at it from those terms, it's not as difficult as it sounds. And it gives you time to process it rather than trying to write a 15,000 word manuscript in a weekend and call it a book. That's just not a book. It's the same thing, I guess, as AI writing now, right? There's a lot more generative AI tools. If you're like, oh, you know, I'm going to write a bunch of books. I'm like, is that really writing? I don't think that the process of writing a book in a weekend or a week it's, it's almost like I want to have written as qu- it, it's the qualitative quantitative productivity battle, right? Like I want to check that off as quickly as possible as opposed to, and then I can say I wrote a book as opposed to the process of it, which I know, and you know, isn't, uh, it, it can be prolonged and it should be, I think, prolonged to a degree, right? Absolutely. I mean, I, James Clear comes to mind, right? Atomic Habits, fabulous book. He spent years writing that book. He did not write it in a weekend or a week or even a month. He spent years. And I think people forget that's a huge part of what makes a book successful is that it's a great read, that you want to go tell three friends about it. And that book, I did that. I still sing its praises. I love that book. And now it's sold 10 million copies because other people are saying, I love this book. You must read it. So that is why you should really focus on the quality of your writing and work with editors and professionals that help make it a better book to read. Managing passwords can be a real headache, right? Think about it. Every website requires a new password. Each one needs to be unique, secure, and somehow memorable. But there's a better way. Welcome to the world of 1Password, where your entire company can generate strong, unique passwords, store them securely, and access them across any device without ever needing a reset. Imagine never having to click Forgot Password again. With 1Password's award-winning design, managing passwords becomes a breeze for you and your entire team. It's trusted by millions, including top companies like IBM and Slack. Here's the best part. My listeners can try 1Password for free for two weeks. Right now, get your free trial at onepasswordcom slash ConVo. Secure your passwords and simplify your online security with 1Password. Starting an online business or expanding your physical storefront online has never been easier thanks to Shopify. This global commerce platform supports you at every stage of your business journey. 
From launching your online shop to managing a million orders, Shopify is there to simplify and accelerate your growth. It's not just about selling products. So Shopify helps you manage every aspect of your business with their all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. But that's not all. Shopify helps you convert visitors into customers with the best converting checkout process on the internet, which performs up to 36% better than other platforms. And now a special offer for my listeners. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash timecrafting, all lowercase. Whether you're just starting out or looking to scale up, Shopify is the perfect partner for your business. Are you a small business owner struggling to find the right talent for your team? I've been there and I know how challenging it can be. That's why I recommend LinkedIn Jobs. It's not just any job board. It's a community where you can find professionals who are the perfect fit for your business, many of whom aren't checking other job sites. In fact, 70% of LinkedIn users aren't visiting other leading job sites, making LinkedIn your best bet for finding top talent. With LinkedIn jobs, you can post your job and reach qualified candidates quickly. 86% of small businesses find a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And now you can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash conversation. That's right, for free. Don't miss out on finding top talent. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash conversation today. Terms and conditions apply. This leads me to a question I didn't think I'd ask you, but the idea, and this came up, we were talking before we hit record of, uh, I was at a conference and a bunch of uh, authors, both published, some that were self-published and also traditionally published, but also um, we, in this space, and nonfiction authors are particularly notorious for this, although fiction are, are too, so let, let, I, I want to qualify that, is just churning out a book a year or a book every, and by the way, I could see Stephanie shaking her head while she's doing this. And we had this conversation and there was no definitive answer through this, con there's about five of us talking. Because part of my, uh, the people that I've, and again, uh, no shame, no judgment here. It was just, I look at that and I'm like, number one, how do you do it? Number two, how do you market the book that you wrote when you're already looking at the next one that you're going to release in a year from now? Like James is a good example. One book, he's built his entire business around it. Susan Cain has written, Quiet came out years ago. Only recently did Bittersweet come out. And so to me, I had, I'm trying to decide. I, I think I know which way I'm going to go because, uh, you know, again, my frequency of publishing books has been, you know, fairly spread out. And I, I kind of like that. I want the productivity diet to be the book that I can hang my hat on for at least two, if not more years. And if I write another book, it'll be, again, disparate. It'll be somewhat related. But what do you think about this concept of I want to have a body of work like, again, and let's use Ryan Holiday as an example. I mean, he's a great example because his books are really good, but man, every year, like you're getting one. And to me, it's almost, it's, it can be overload. It can be. Um, so uh, what are your thoughts on the, like, let's release a book every year to year and a half versus let me get that one book done and then ride that wave. And then in, while that wave is being ridden, in the background, maybe start thinking about the next, because we know James is thinking about the next one. We just don't know what it's going to be, um, just like Susan, right? So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, if you've got more to say, 
right? Then it makes sense. And it's, it's something different. Like you said, your next book will probably be pretty different from the current, the book you're about to release. But I, I don't see a need to rush. However, in publishing, and one thing is well known, when you release a book, your backlist will get more sales. Right. So there are, there are benefits to every time you release a book, more people discover your previous books. Mm. I can see why Ryan approaches it that way. Michael Hyatt is another example. We were just talking Michael, Michael does that too. Yeah, extremely absolutely. prolific. Yep. So, you know, I guess it depends on you. If you can write really good books and you can turn them out, I mean, more power to you. I, I can't do that that quickly and feel comfortable. I want to love a book before I put it out in the world. Well, and I also think uh, as, as I was having that conversation and even percolating on it since getting back is just because you don't write the book, there are other ways to get that content out there. Video, blogging, email newsletters to, to test your stuff, to see if it's resonating, asking. I mean, people, it's funny, um, <clears throat> writers before, like back when you were starting out, they didn't have as direct access to their audience as they do now. There was right. always that middle person, which we will definitely talk about traditional publishing because there was like definitely that's one of the things. There was the writer and then the publisher and, you know, reaching the audience, you you couldn't do that nearly as directly unless you went on book tours and all that stuff. And even then. Um, so to me, it's it's almost like proof of concept writing along the way, exploration, the process of, and that, that to me is being a writer as opposed to, I got to get a book out and I got to write a book in a week. I got to write a book into, or, or I think there's that exploration because, and one thing someone asked me, and I've said this to even my family, uh, they're like, when are you going to retire? I'm like, I'm a writer. I don't retire. I, I don't retire yeah. till I expire. Like I don't like, mm -hmm. I may slow down. I may yep. change the type of writing I will do, but I, you know, it's, it's one of those things that's intrinsically linked to me, yeah. which makes it both amazing and also can be a source of anguish and anxiety at times too. So let's, can we dive into like the other, like, especially when it comes to marketing, because that's something that you have a real degree of expertise in, is the things that authors can do, especially if someone's listening right now, like me. Uh, <laughs> what can they do to take the book that they've written or maybe a book that they've written has been kind of out in the world for a while. Yeah. And languishing. Yeah. What can they do to kind of bring more readers to it? So the very first thing I always tell authors is to get super clear about your target audience, ideally before you write the book. Right. And I'm a big believer in niching down. I don't think that any book appeals to everyone at all. That's just not possible. So I think that's a critical ingredient that a lot of writers miss. Now you're super clear on your audience. You've been doing your podcast for years and that's going to help you tremendously. But that is step one. Know your audience and know what their pain points are. What are their challenges and interests and how does your book solve their problems or make their life better in some way? That is so essential and that becomes part of the messaging of the book as well. And then from there, you know, planning your launch, number one is I call it your tribe of influence. Who do you know that can help you get the word out about your book? And I actually make this an exercise. So when I release, I'm getting ready to release a new book. Part of my marketing plan is to literally spend an afternoon thinking about who do I know? Who should I send a review copy to? Um, I will go through my emails. I will look through my past podcast interviews, 
right? And mm -hmm. because you forget, yeah. you forget. Yep, absolutely. It's funny. I just literally showed you like one page that I have to follow up with as the campaign gets co coming to a close of reaching out to them. But not only that, what's interesting about the crowd is, is I've got this launch happening right now for the book that's been written and now we're finishing it up. But when the book comes out, I get a whole nother launch cycle. So there's a strategic element to it too, where I'm like, if I don't want to burn out that favor for lack of a better term, but I also know that there's certain people that I want them to be holding the book in their hands when they promote it, as opposed to, you know, here's the campaign. I'm going to get two launch cycles, possibly three, again, knowing my audience, because if the book comes out in November, that's great. But then January, when everyone's thinking about like late December or January, how do I be more productive? New Year's, oh my goodness. I'm like, hey, guess what? This is the time. Summer is a terrible time for me to be promoting a book about productivity because nobody's thinking about being productive in the summer, right? Or very few. Um, and if that's so, then they'll pick it up anyway. But the people that like January, critical mass. November, I want to finish the year strong, critical mass. And then, so I'm going to get those cycles. And I think we get those cycles regularly too. So would that be something that like, hey, this book's been in my back catalog for a while. It's time to think about it again. Is that a way you can resurface them as well as thinking about the seasons? Yeah. So summer in general is not a good time to launch a nonfiction book because like you said, we're not focused. Our right. kids are home. We're, we're doing other things. So not a good time. My two favorite times to launch books are January, February and fall. So like August, September. Mm -hmm. When you get into November, my, I start to worry a little bit. Let me tell you why. Sure. Because um, by the time the book, by the time it's January, the book has a copyright date that's a year old. Uh, so it's the, it's the appearance that the book was out it in 2023. It sounds like the book's a year old. That's a good point. So I often talk nonfiction authors into pushing their book launches into January. And you have a book that would do really well in January because people are so focused. And what you could do, Mike, is put that book on pre-sale in November. That's Yeah, that's a great idea because the Kickstarter backers are getting it in November. Put it on pre-sale yes. in November with the January release. Yes. Brilliant. See this selfish, <laughs> se selfish, selfish <laughs> slash selfless conversation. There you go, everybody. You're getting, anyone who's listening right now, it's a nice little <laughs> tease that if you back the campaign, good, good on you. You're going to get the book before anybody else. But if not, that's when the, so there you go. See, this is, this is great stuff. Um, let's, let's shift gears to talk about traditional publishing, because I mm -hmm. want to make sure that we hit this, uh, you and I, before, uh, we chatted uh, before we hit record rather talked about the model. There's several different models, right? There's just straight self-publishing, there's hybrid, and then there's traditional publishing. I know that there are people who solely self-publish at this point. Uh, mm -hmm. I know people that love to have the hybrid model it becomes a bit of pay to play in those spaces where you're giving money up, which is some of the stuff that, you know, I'm doing to a degree with the, with the productivity diet. And then there's the traditional route. Now the traditional route, I know people that are still doing it. And there, by the way, there's pros and cons for sure. Um, and whether I wouldn't say that there's an enormous amount of frustration, but I would say that there are elements that I'll speak to that I, think it all of them work to a degree, right? I don't want to, you know, <laughs> I don't want to bite the hand that feeds authors. And especially if I'm working on one that's traditionally published, because I think there are benefits, but I'd love to hear from you. Some of the, maybe some of the pros and cons of self-publishing, 
And then let's lean into the the same conversation about traditional, even sneak in maybe some, the hybrid stuff I think is where people get confused too. So can we get into some of that as we get closer to the end of our conversation? Yeah, let's dig in. So I think I'm going to flip that around. So sure. let's talk about pros and cons of traditional first. Sure. You know, back when I got my first book deal, which was like 2004, 2005, it, it, bookstores were where it was at. We were physically going to bookstores. I owned a bookstore. Like it was the focus. But, you know, in the last decade and a half, that the landscape has shifted. Mike, nobody knows for sure, but we believe that Amazon is selling around 70% of all books. Right. And, you know, here in Sacramento, we have a Barnes and Noble closing, which is devastating. So brick and mortar isn't what it used to be. You know, we you mentioned audiobooks. I've become a huge audiobook reader myself. And as much as I still love a physical book, I've got my Kindle loaded up. I've got my Audible loaded up. I almost, you know, very rarely buy the physical book any longer. So the bookstore placement doesn't have the same appeal unless you have a really you know, broad topic that people would pick up in a bookstore. Right. But but the fact is we're in a bookstore, we see a book we want, we're getting on our phones well, and, and buying and Amazon. When we talk about airport placement, because that comes up a lot, especially with nonfiction book, it's not everything that everyone thinks it is either. And it's also all paid. You it's, don't just get yeah. chosen. Yes. And, and, it is, and it's big money. Right. Big and, money. and we Tens look at it like, so it's funny. I was just traveling and I saw a book there and I guarantee you, I'm not the only one that does this. I'll take a photo of the book. So that way I remember to buy it on Amazon, on Kindle. And by the way, let's be clear, Audible, Kindle, Amazon, they're all Amazon. Every one of and them. And it's honestly, that's like... I have a huge love-hate relationship with Amazon, well, but that's another story. The, the other thing I want to bring up, you mentioned Barnes & Noble. We have a, a store, um, a chain up here called Indigo. It used to be called Chapters. And one, they've done pretty well. Canadians shop differently. I think a, a, the audiences in the UK shop differently too. So it, audience matters. But I, I remember reading a story, maybe I'll put a link in the show notes, about how Barnes & Noble is trying to reinvent in, in the markets that it's still there. Um, and some of them are actually doing okay because it's be, they're trying to make it back to what we were talking, a community place, a place where you go, more places to sit down. They're almost taking like some of the elements of like the library and and the coffee shop and merging them into the, with the hope that if you just get people in there and they're like, you know what, I'll, I'll just buy it. Like, it's almost like, you know, you, 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 there's a persuasiveness to it, a warm persuasiveness to it. And I know it's not Barnes and Noble. The problem, I think, with a lot of Barnes and Noble uh, stores where they were, where they were placed near like those big mega like Costco's and the big mega power centers. Those aren't warm and inviting locations to go mm -hmm. to. But, uh, you know, the the one that's downtown that you could walk by. Absolutely. The ones that are in maybe more traditional shopping malls. Maybe, especially if you've got like a coffee shop right in the in the location. So I think they're trying. But yeah, it's you're you're I mean, you know, you know it. I mean, <laughs> traditional bookstores are um, they have they've been struggling for a long time. Like, frankly, the music industry felt the same. I mean, HMV were around for a long time. Where are they now? Right. Where yeah. the only thing we're seeing now is a return to vinyl. Uh, which is unreal to me. I actually just got a vinyl record in the mail yesterday, um, which I love. I mean, there's a nostalgic yeah. element to it. And so I think people still like to hold paper, but if they can get it from Amazon, that's where people are typically going. So that's one. Uh, keep keep going. All right. So, so traditional publishing, 
the book's replacement doesn't have the the power it used to. Certainly, there is that um, credibility of being able to say, I've got a book with one of the big five publishers or whatever that is. That's, there's no denying that. And as a writer myself, I really had this goal. I wanted to be traditionally published. And I think a lot of writers feel that way. And, and if that's the case, that's great. you know. But the flip side, and the reason I left traditional publishing, you have a lack of control over your content. They can change your title. They, can, they will pay you a dollar a book. And even if you do get a book advance, let's, and those have come way down. So let's say you get a five or 10 grand as an advance, you will not see another dime until you earn that back $1 at a time. You have to earn out your advance through book sales. And they're not doing the marketing writers think they are, right? They're still relying on the authors to do their own marketing. They invest their marketing dollars in their in their sure things, yep. in their John Grishams and their, you know, James Clears and, yes. and it's those folks. So you have to work to prove yourself and do the heavy lifting. But what happened with my um, publishing experience, I had my titles changed. I had covers I didn't like. And the last straw for me was when the publisher called and said, we want you to remove a chapter from the book. We don't care which one we need to cut costs. And I thought, I am never letting that happen again. Now, I turned it into Lemonade and I had readers get the free download, right, of the resources chapter. And that became a strategy I put into every book, and you should too. However, I was never going to let my content be controlled that way again. That was that, was, and I was doing all the heavy lifting anyway. They were, they one of them assigned me a publicist, and I thought, oh my gosh, this is amazing! They're giving me a publicist. She landed me two podcast interviews, two. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, we know when we work with people that are independently published or even aren't, they're hustling to get their hiring agencies. I mean my inbox gets a lot of emails from uh, from publicists and it's more public relations firms. And I know that a lot of them are being paid by the authors themselves. Absolutely. And it's, you know, publicity is expensive and mm-hmm. you'll never earn it back in book sales. I mean, we could go down a whole rabbit hole it, on that. It, it's also interesting. And I mean, I'll, I'll say it right here, right now, that sometimes you'll get a publicist that sends you an email and they're like, did you even listen to my podcast? <laughs> Do you know what my pot, like you're pitching a guest that I'm like, uh, and I mean, I'm not saying that this happens all, it happens frequently, but it's, yeah. it, it's like that, that in and of itself makes it feel like the person that's hiring that person is not, they're just doing a mass send again, quantity over quality. And uh, right. I'm, I know I'm not the only one in this space that gets those kind of, you know, it's like, no. you know, uh, are you sure that you even know that this, like, cause it's not a market fit. I'll get emails about, you know, financial stuff or whatever. And sometimes the thing is, sometimes I can make it work, but, but I, that wasn't, and actually this is a nice tie. Early days when I, my podcast was not like I was new. Yeah. I would make it work now that I'm almost 500 episodes in. I don't want to do that nearly as much. I don't need to do that nearly as much. So if there's gotta be effort on both sides. So yeah, that, I, I can definitely, yeah, I hear you on that front for sure. And look at that in terms of marketing your own book. You're not going to send your book to a blogger who writes about weight loss. <laughs> like, I mean, you, you know, you're going to focus your marketing efforts yes. to where your audience is spending time. And so that's a, a, a very valid point. Absolutely. All right. Let's, let's talk about the hybrid model really quickly, because mm-hmm. I think that that's an area that's expanding. 
I mean, mm-hmm. you would know better than I would, but there's also some pros and cons to that, I would imagine, too. Yeah. So hybrid publishing is basically a paid paid self-publishing. So true self-publishing is that you you hire all your talent yourself. You find your editors. Usually we use multiple editors. You hire your typesetter, your ebook formatter, your audiobook production, all the things. And you go and register ISBNs and get your barcodes and Library of Congress. I mean, there's a lot of steps to producing a book. And so for authors, especially in the nonfiction space, who are busy, who are entrepreneurs like you and I, who don't want to do all the heavy lifting, hybrid publishing services come in and do that heavy lifting. And so they're really meant for people who are too busy and don't want to do things that are outside of their expertise. And yes, it's a paid service. You're going to pay either way. You're going to pay if you self-publish yourself because you need to hire the right people. And please, 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 if you self-publish, do it the right way. Hire experts, hire people that are experienced in cover design and editing and all those things. But that's where the hybrid comes in. And you might spend a little bit more with a hybrid, but you get professional services, especially if um, a key in the hybrid definition is that they vet manuscripts. They don't just publish anything in exchange for a check. Right. And the other thing I think that's worth noting there is you have control over a great deal of the process to it. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like, when you go with a virtual assistant agency over hiring a virtual assistant on your own, right? They're going to help facilitate. They're going to find the right thing. They've got the people they work with, et cetera. But then at the end of the day, that's where the cost, it can be a little bit more elevated because you're paying for a service that has expertise in the area that, that they can pull from as opposed to doing it on your own. Whereas you don't have that expertise in you yet, necessarily doing that stuff. Once you've done it, you might be able to just do it again and again and again if you can get work with the same people or know what you're looking for or 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 now figured out what you're looking for, I think is the other thing too, right? It's it's uh it's an interesting model that I find is again, it, it's it's almost I think about it now. Um we just had Uber show up here in Victoria for the first time in as we're recording this and there was a lot of pushback because taxi companies didn't want them. It's the same thing with Airbnb versus hotels. I almost and, and so the hotel lobby didn't like them or the or the taxi cab lobby didn't like them because they were right. disruptive businesses. I think we're hearing the same thing with hybrid publishing. It's a disruptive business. Uh you'll hear people in the traditional publishing space. I'm not I've heard it where they're like, oh, you shouldn't have to pay someone or, oh, you shouldn't have to do that. Um, and and there you have, again, this is where your organization, the association can help because it helps drown out some of that, the, the overwhelm, the noise that can, that can infiltrate. Cause all we want to do is frankly, all I want to do is write. All I want to do is get my message out to the world and have an impact and anything that can get in the way um, makes it that much longer for me to do that. Or, maybe eliminates it altogether, which is not what we want. I mean, it took a long time for me to just say, you know what? I am a writer first and foremost. I'm an entrepreneur, sure. But writing is my paramount thing. Yes, I have this podcast. I have people that come, I love your podcast. I'm like, yes, that's great. But it's the adjunct of what I do. Uh, The the writing is my core, uh, core way of creating content. Um, And anything that gets in the way of making that happen I am trying to eliminate. 
Um, finally, let's talk about the, so the traditional, so the, the pure self-publishing, what does somebody need to know? You said definitely, you've given some tips already as we close to wrapping up. Um, what are, what are the things that people should think about other you've talked about marketing, but first steps, I want to self-publish. I want to do, I want to get my book out to the world. Where should they start? Well, definitely get some guidance, you know, from somewhere reputable, So here's the thing. I am not a big fan of cut all the corners and do it as cheaply as possible. Now, if that's all your budget can afford, I get that. But I mean, you can go to KDP and upload your book and get it out in the world. It's not the ideal way, especially for those of us who are professionals and your book represents you and your business. So it really is a matter of finding the right talent. I, I see this all the time. Oh, I know someone who's a graphic designer. Oh, my grandson is, you know, learning graphic design at school. I'm going to have him design my cover. And then I see the cover and it looks nothing like a professional book cover because you really want your book to look like it was produced by a, a big traditional publishing house. So you want to get some guidance. That is where we come in, you know, at Nonfiction Authors Association is to help people avoid mistakes. And I wanted to jump back on one thing, sure. Mike, on the hybrid. Yep. Things to look out for, mm, yes. right? Because there is a lot of bad actors out there. Yeah. So things to look out for. Do you get to set your own retail price? Are you going to earn more in your book than the, than the hybrid publisher? You should earn more on your book than your publisher should earn. Mm-hmm. That's huge. Do not lock in on a long-term contract. Some of them are looking for authors to lock in for one or two years. So if, if you self-publish a random house calls and they want to acquire the rights to your book, you're stuck. You can't take your book back. So look for those long-term contracts. Do not sign them. And please, 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 when you're investigating any publishing service, Google the publishing name with the word scam, with the word reviews, with, you know, those things to make sure, because I will tell you, there are some that look very reputable and they are not. And There's some that are embroiled in lawsuits that don't pay their authors in a timely manner. So please be careful delving into that space. And there's also one that we thought was going to be around for a long time that I went, almost went with and they are no longer accepting at this point. Okay. And so this happens too. And I, so I see this a lot. So there's also maybe a book editor, a book coach, and they're like, well, authors are always asking me how to publish. I just started my own imprint. Right. And then they don't really understand the publishing industry. Mm -hmm. And maybe in a year they think, oh, this is too much work. I'm going to shut it down. I see this all the time. So just important things to look out for when you're hiring a hybrid. Stephanie, this has been a great conversation. It's incredibly helpful to me. I I know a lot of people listening right now. It's the same. Where can people keep up with you, the association and uh, all things Stephanie Chandler? Well, thank you. Yeah, nonfictionauthorsassociation.com is the hub. We recently launched nonfictionbookclub.com. So we're promoting our members over on that site as well. We just had our conference, so that won't be for another year. Um, But I'm very active with our social media. We have a big presence on Facebook. Twitter shut us down, Mike. They shut us down. We evaporated, lost all our followers overnight for no reason. Wow. So that that was a huge disappointment last year. But um, maybe, yeah. e- maybe Elon is uh, doesn't like some of the stuff. <laughs> Apparently, Elon is not a fan. Yeah. I, I don't know what to say. It's mutual, to be honest. But yeah. <laughs> uh, so anyways, we'll have all the links in the show notes. Stephanie, thanks so much for having a productive conversation with me today. 
Totally my pleasure. Thanks, Mike. Big thanks to Stephanie for joining me today. You can find all of the relevant links and takeaways either in the podcast app you're using right now, which you should use to subscribe to the podcast. That way you don't miss a single episode of what's to come and can find things through the archives very easily as well. But I digress. Let's get back to where you can find the show notes. It's at productivityist.com slash podcast 488. And again, if you want to support the show, subscribing is one way to do so. Another way is to check out the sponsors that you heard on today's show and take advantage of the offers that they're providing. All you need to do is to check out the page at productivityist.com slash podcast sponsors. Make that happen. And that way they know that I sent you. That's it for this episode. I want to thank you so much for being part of it. I want to thank Stephanie for joining me. And until next time, I'm Mike Vardy, the host of A Productive Conversation, reminding you to stop doing productive and start being productive. See you later.